Welcome back to the Rockcast, everybody, brought to you by Onyx Hot Maps and partnered with Black Rifle Coffee Company. Today we have a good episode for you on mule deer. We have a fellow by the name of Dan Brannigan on. He wrote a book called So You Want to Hunt the West for Mule Deer, Now What? And we'll get into it in the episode, but this is basically a, a comprehensive, like a step-by-step guidebook. Um, he has quite a large table of contents. Uh, total, the book is about 224 pages long or so. And there's everything from, um, like, you know, introduction to the mule deer and understanding mule deer survival um, through conservation, you know, transformation to how he came into a mule deer hunter, um, understanding their, like, what they what they need. Um, he goes through methods of hunting um, and just a lot of stuff. Uh, planning, goes through planning, talks about private land and public ground and the differences there. Um, there's just a, there's a, a ton of things in here. And then even at the end, you know, what to do after you shoot a mule deer, talks about scoring a little bit. Um, and then he goes through a few hunts of his own, which he's actually got like eight or nine of them in there. Uh, Robbie did a review on this book a few months ago. I will link to that down in the show notes. Um, but without further, further ado, we'll just jump right into the episode with Dan. Dan, can you give a little bit of your background and moving like from out east to out west now um and just kind of your background on that and background on mule deer yeah i had i was born and raised jordan in southern michigan i was raised in a hunting family so we did a lot of hunting back there in in michigan and also i had graduate school in iowa it's a little bit different hunting back there because you can get multiple deer tags. So by the time I moved to Idaho in 1995, I had probably about 40 deer kills and four or five bear as well. So I was a pretty good hunter coming in uh, to Idaho, but then I had to learn a lot and I'm obviously still learning today. So I moved out here. I was pretty successful hunting, uh, archery elk hunting, especially growing up in Michigan. It's very thick country. And so I could go up into the mountains and, Call an elk successfully, probably got about eight out of ten the first years, first eight elk out of the first ten years, my bow and arrow. I drew in 2000 a Cyrus moose tag and killed a very nice blue and crockett moose 50 inches wide. But I still, during this time frame, struggled with mule deer. But fortunately, the seasons were such structured back then that while the mule deer seasons were short, they had uh, whitetail seasons with the same tag. So I'd go on the river bottom and hunt whitetails successfully. But it was about 10 years of hunting before I killed my first mature mule deer buck. And it's something that, uh, you know, I really wanted to get and something I've focused on since that time. Yeah. How was, can you give a little background on the book and how you came to write that? Yeah, when I moved out here, I was surprised by uh, a number of things. And the first one was kind of the secret of nature of my friends who were really good hunters. They had some really good friends that were hunters on their on their spots that they were hunting. I understand that now because hunting in the West is you know very difficult to find these hot spots. Back in the Midwest, if you look at a, a specific area of Michigan or area of Iowa, 
you know, the deer numbers are relatively uniform. And so you would have pretty good hunting. It was more about technique. But out west, it's very difficult to, to find these. In fact, probably two main reasons why I struggled on mule deer or why mule deer hunting is, I think, unique and different compared to other big game is, first of all, you have to find them in this vast terrain of the west. And when I hunted growing up in, my, in southern Michigan, we were in areas that were 25 to 30 deer per square mile, and that was good hunting. We had a cabin in the north woods in a different habitat in, in the thick woods. And the hunting really was a lot tougher, about 10 to 15 deer per square mile. If I compare the UP, Upper Peninsula of Michigan, especially the southwest areas I would hunt, there were 60 to 65 deer per square mile. It was great hunting. Then I moved out west, and you know, most areas have less than one deer per average per square mile. Certainly some of the better areas, better units of these Western states, you might be two to three deer per square mile on average. And also this is on a flat map. So if you add in topography, you can reduce those numbers by half. So it's very important to be able to find these hot spots to be successful. Very important to understand the fall transitional patterns and the habitat needs, which I think we'll cover in, in this uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. And so that was a, a key part. And the second part was knowing how to hunt them hunt mule deer specifically, because whitetail hunting in the Midwest is, no, it's all, every, every part of hunting is hard, but you can almost brute force tactics and get your whitetail buck. And that's because hunting seasons are long, you've got you know, early archery, and then you have a lot of times really muzzleloader, rifle seasons, and you have late, uh, late muzzleloader and late archery. So you can get in 100 days of hunting. There were some seasons before I was married and before I had kids that I probably got close to 100 days of hunting in, but out west, you know, it's it's very tough hunting. Uh, growing up in the Midwest, my dad had 15 acres, for example, in Michigan, and a lot of times we just, after work or after school, could walk out, sit on a, a tree stand. So it's not physically challenging, but out west, it's it's very difficult. It's physically challenging. You have to hunt smart, and brute force tactics won't work. So I wrote my book on how to hunt mule deer based on what I've learned over 25 years of hunting. And it's exactly information that I needed to know. And I can't imagine how well I could have done had I known what I know now, but I think it'd be a great resource for anyone moving out or any, even any experienced hunter coming to the West that are already living out here. Yeah. Can you talk about your struggles with coming from uh, out East and then moving out West, just your struggles specifically with mule deer? Yeah, and I kind of went over that briefly. First of all, it's just how, how to find them, mm -hmm. to be able to hunt the right habitat types. I mean, I started hunting in a lot of uh, very thick areas, you know, very thick areas where I was successful in hunting elk and obviously mule deer, like much more open areas where there's better feed. So I wasn't in the right areas for feed. I didn't know how to find the hot spots at that time. And I had a hunting partner that at that time that hunted certainly knew more about mule deer than I did, but we did a lot of kind of strange tactics such as two man drives, which is can be successful in the, in the, in the right situation. But, uh, but, but if you don't do it right, mule deer are hard to drive and we throw rocks into different aspen patches to drive deer out, but pretty much we were spooking the area out. So we did a lot of hunting tactics that were wrong that weren't successful back then. 
Yeah. So what did that look like? Like how long did it take you doing those tactics to then kind of change to maybe what you do now? Well, I would say it was a, a continuous process. Yeah. And, um, you know, the first five years were a struggle. And then I got my first mature mule deer buck at the, about the 10 year point. And then I've been learning ever since. And I became passionate about mule deer. Uh, I can probably tell this story. Yeah. With after, shortly after I moved out west out to Idaho, I moved out into the into the country. So we were out about 25 miles up in the mountains, and it was so far out that you know, I needed a bulldozer. I had an Ellis Chalmers 653 just to move snow off the driveway. Six to eight foot drifts commonly. But as it turned out, this was amazing wintering ground for some of the biggest, probably some of the biggest mule deer in Idaho. And so back then I would put some alfalfa out for the mule deer. And these amazing bucks would come in every evening. Uh, and I had a light I could click on and watch them. So I had the kids, we'd just watch them every evening. The huge mule deer bucks. And it's very interesting how they would come in and they'd show up around mid to late November and they'd be there until, until the spring. They would show up just completely, uh, you know, decimated from the from the fall rut season, all beat up, scarred up, broken tines. You can see their ribs, just very depleted in general. And uh, you know, the, and that really limits big bucks because, especially in these northern climates like Idaho, they get so depleted during the during the rut. But we'd watch them every night, and I. But then every spring, as soon as the snow melted, you got a little green, they would be gone. And you wouldn't ever see these mule deer. I'd, I'd hunt them. I'd try to find where they would go. I didn't know where they would go. And then the next uh, next November, they would show up again. And uh, and we'd, we'd watch them all over again. We had bucks that were there usually two to three years. One was there probably four years in a row. And some of these bucks were quite large. It was kind of an area where the large mule deer bucks would winter. We probably had one in the high 30s. He was an interesting deer because all the other mule deer bucks that would come in were always depleted. He would come in fat, <laughs> uh, not a scar on him, not a broken tine. He was extremely wide. He wasn't dominant uh, in the alfalfa. He had a very meek personality, but that's why he lived so old because he just never got depleted. That's interesting. I wonder why he did that. Like, was that, I mean, was that a, conscious thing for whatever reason he just didn't like do you think he rutted at all i'm not sure because he had a very meek character deer that were half his size you know they kind of position themselves around the alfalfa and he would always be uh not dominant compared to the other bucks but he would come in um, every year just fat and he would leave in the spring fat and he'd live to a, a big old age he was by far the biggest deer i might have had a deer come in one time and had a antler stuck in its back, you know, broke off from fighting. That's how much they fight uh, in this area and in, in other areas. But anyhow, I was just watching these mule deer and just couldn't figure out where they were going, trying to understand the patterns. Then I had kind of my first breakthrough where uh, on the neighboring ranch, one of the cousins had shot this huge mule deer buck and it was probably a 230 inch class, which is pretty massive for Idaho over 30 inches in size, it was non-typical, like 10 to 15 points. And so every time he'd see his cousins, he would 
stopped by just to show me his mule deer picture, which I liked. And I just really wanted to, uh, you know, understand more about that deer because he told me that he found that shed within a couple miles of my my house or a couple, couple hundred yards, excuse me, from the house that I lived at. So I then had a window of where that deer was about four or five years before I moved there. And then I always, because he found that same shed in the spring and shot it in the fall, you could match up the shed. And I always wondered where that deer was in October. And then he moved to Ohio one year. So I asked him, hey, you're moving to Ohio. Where did you get that deer? So he showed me. So now I started to understand and started to focus on these fall transitions. Where are these deer going to go? And that really allowed me to focus on you know, trying to understand these fall traditional patterns and what the mule deer are doing in different areas, what habitat they're using. That's been a big focus of the book that I wrote. Interesting. How far were those deer going like from the summer range to your house? It was many miles. I probably shouldn't say exactly how many miles this one was just because there's some people in the area but he went uh, many miles. Uh, it wasn't like a, a Wyoming mule deer migration, you know, with that one deer that's well documented that went almost 250 miles one direction. Yeah. It wasn't anything like that. It was in the same same unit, but it still was quite a quite a few miles away. That's interesting. So we're going to get into, you touch on your book a bit about like transitional patterns. And I think that that is really, that stuff is super interesting. Um, but first, just nowadays of like e-scouting and people are busy and um you know a lot of guys that are coming from back east out west they pretty much only have e-scouting to to rely on can you dive into that a little bit yeah yeah i could probably we'll talk about preferred habitat and then how to scout yeah. for that one of the things about mule deer that is very unique compared to even other Western game areas is that they have a smaller proportional first stomach or rumen. And what that means is that they have to be very selective feeders. It's not that they have a choice to be a selective feeder. They have a small rumen and that's where they, you know, they regurgitate and chew their cud. So they have to be very selective feeders because they have to get enough weight to survive these difficult winters. Well, that is a key driver in finding mule deer is that they're highly selective on, on feeding. So if you look at uh, what a, mule, a typical mule deer is doing, now if you have an early uh, bow hunt in say September, then they might be in a late summer pattern and they're gonna be focused on forbs and grasses. Forbs about 60%, grasses 30%. So about 90% of their diet is gonna be forbs and grasses. I'm generally not keen on that type of habitat because I, I hunt archery elk during September that every year. And so I'm not really hunting mule deer during that time, but I hunt them in the, in the fall during the later seasons, but they'll transition into a, into a browse rich diet. And you can imagine that the forbs and grasses are dying off. And so they have to switch diets because the forbs and grasses are gone. And so they, they go to a browse rich uh, diet. So I'm focusing on those areas. So great browse habitat that I look for is uh, aspen shrub habitat uh, in this area. And because they aspens are a great food source, but in the aspens you have other ground covers. Uh, commonly in, in this area, we have Oregon grape as a ground cover, which is great food source. Rocky Mountain maples and choke cherries 
are mixed in. Sarvice berries can be an excellent food choice for mule deer, both the dried berries and, and obviously the sarvice berry branches themselves. I also look for mixed aspen conifer habitat, you know, especially that thermal cover can be import, important for the severe storms and wind that we get in, in this area. A sagebrush step habitat, especially in uh, later seasons or later part of the fall, or for example, during heavy snow areas, is a very important habitat. And in sagebrush step habitat, you have the big sagebrush and rabbit brush, which are browse species. But I really look for bitter brush. Bitter brush is really the main food source for mule during the winter time as well, but they use it heavily in the fall. And uh, you want to look for not all these areas are 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 great because if it's total aspen shrub, that may not be as good as having a like a 50-50 mix of aspen shrub and sagebrush steppe. I think that's an ideal combination for mule deer. And even the aspens themselves of the shrub habitat is is not all the same because you want to look for early and mid succession shrub communities. Deer browse on the new shoots and succulent leaders. And that's important because again, they have to be very selective on their diet. And that's why birds can be uh, good areas to hunt because you have that new growth. Uh, I don't hunt a lot of birds because I think two reasons. One, they, they can certainly be very good, but I think the word's gotten out and even the apps will show you the burn areas. So I think mm -hmm. it attracts more, more hunters. And also you have to look at a burn, you know, depending on how the burn area recovers, a lot of times, unfortunately, it gets taken over by noxious weeds. And noxious weeds provide very little uh, browsing habitat, especially cheatgrass. Mm -hmm. You know, cheatgrass is just a plague of the West. And uh, it'll just, I think it's like 100 million acres of, of cheatgrass in the West that have just taken over. And they have a limited grazing value in the spring when it first comes up, but in the fall, it has no grazing value. And I just think that, you know, if we want to improve our mule deer numbers, we should take a hard look at planting like immigrant forage kochia is one of the plants that I'm really focused on for wildlife planting because it actually will all compete uh, cheat, glass, cheat grass and provide important grazing habitat. If you, I know you, I think you live in Boise. I do, yeah. Yeah, so if you go east of uh, Boise and start heading towards Twin Falls, there's tens of thousands of acres of immigrant forage kosher planted by the Idaho BLM. You can see that because it's the greenest plant in the summertime and it's also uh, turns reddish in the fall. And also you can tell it that that's where all the herds of antelope are feeding in those fields as you go across. Interesting. Uh, but moving on to uh, areas I want to look for uh, scouting and, and another factor is that I don't have horses and so I hunt mainly on foot. I have hunted on horses and I've hunt, hunted on mules with friends and it's a, it's a great way to hunt if you have them to get into the back country. So since I'm not, so, so I don't have horses or mules, I'm hunting on foot. And years ago, I talked to a fish and game biologist to see them every week and I'd ask questions every week, probably too many questions. Um, but I asked him one time, you know, based on your radio collar studies, where are the deer now going in Idaho? Because you know, we're not, I'm not talking Frank Church, I'm talking Southeast and Central, South Central Idaho areas that I like to hunt in. They're pretty heavily hunted. So they're not wilderness type country. And he said that very surprisingly, 
a lot of these deer and elk hold up into pockets. All right, folks, hope you're enjoying this podcast. Dan is a wealth of information and super happy that he could share it all here. We'll continue on here in just a second, but we want to thank our sponsor, Onyx Hunt Maps, for helping us out with kicking the podcast out to all your speakers. Um, you can enter code ROCKCAST at checkout for 20% off of the maps, and we've been using them here quite a bit just in the off season, trying to find more spots and dropping a bunch of pins to hit here in the spring when snow melts a little bit more, and also just to find places to like go out and run the dog and try to go find some ducks and things like that. Um, there was a little HMA that we'd never been to before. We dropped a couple pins in it, went out there, just kind of, uh, drove around, scoped it out, figured things out and ended up going in and find some ducks. So it's a, it's a good tool. It certainly, certainly helps with like all the map layers and stuff. You can find access and things much quicker than you used to be able to. Um, so that's nice. And then Black Rifle Coffee, want to thank them too for partnering with us. Um, one of my favorites as a medium roast is the Freedom Roast. It's probably, it's right up there with my favorites, um, along with the Gunship and the Silencer Smooth, which are light roasts. So with that, we'll dive back in with Dan. And as far as uh, the second part of that question was on scouting, and my viewpoint is probably a little bit different than, than others. Not that they're doing it wrong and I'm doing it right, but we all have our, probably our different viewpoints. First, I'll say that scouting is something that you should do year-round. And so no matter what you're doing, whether you're hiking, whether you're looking for antlers, you're going high mountain fishing or driving on the highway, picking mushrooms, you should be scouting. When I was in Arizona last week, uh, it was, for example, mainly a vacation for my wife to get out of the snow. We hiked up into some very unique uh, mule deer country, desert mule deer country, and they've got uh, you know the January season going on for archery, which is something I'm interested in, but not ready to really plan a hunt yet. But whatever you do, you should be out scouting and, and try to learn. Now, if I go back years ago, I used to do a lot of summer scouting, but I don't do a lot of that anymore, mainly because I don't early archery hunt mule deer. And so I'm not hunting those air, those more open areas where the forbs and grasses are. I'm hunting later in the fall with a rifle or, or muzzleloader. Uh, I love to hunt the late fall or excuse me, the rut, but in Idaho, it's very hard to draw, you know, the rut, the yeah. rut tag. I mean, we've, I've been here 25 years. I've drawn it once and my family members have never drawn it at all. So there's not many rut tags. So we're pretty much hunting in the middle of the fall, which is the general season for a lot of our hunting areas. So if I do go out summer scouting, I'm looking more for habitat. I'm looking for these high browse areas, which I, I just mentioned, these preferred habitat areas. But I do more and more do uh, post-season scouting. That's been a, a focus because what happens is if you're looking on Onyx and, and Google Earth and different apps, you find preferred areas, but just because the area looks good doesn't mean that the mule deer are using that and using that at the right time when you're out there. There's just so much good country. The West is just so big. There are hot spots in there and you really need boots on the ground to test that. You don't know the hunting, the other hunter patterns, which are driving mule deer around. But if you do, so what I do is do a lot of post-season scouting. So I'll, I'll go out uh, a few days after the season 
like our journal season ends typically the, the October 24th year. And at least in Idaho, you know, a unit size is plus or minus 1 million acres. And they might have five to 20 late season deer tags. So, you know, there's not a lot of hunters and some of those hunters already filled their tags early. Now I know in other states like Colorado, you might have four or five or four rifle seasons in a row. It makes it a little, a little more difficult. But the hunting pressure leaves and these mule deer start coming back out. You can spot them a few days later and they really will guide you to where they're going to be in what habitat, you know, after the season. For example, if I go back two Novembers ago, I spent a lot of time scouting, uh, you know, a few days after the season and probably through mid-November. And I had found two really nice bucks uh, amongst other smaller bucks. One was over 30 inches wide. It's kind of my targeted buck for this last season, but I ended up getting a, a different one. And, and I had spotted him about a, a week after the season ended two years ago. And we had an early snow and that will push their transitional patterns up a little bit earlier as well. So I, I was pretty sure that he would come back to this area. And then I had my uh, son-in-law, a new son-in-law that I was trying to help get a deer. And he's a, he's a good shot, but he actually held out. So I took him out a couple times and got him in range of a, a few mule deer bucks, but he wouldn't shoot because he wanted a big one, which is, pretty unique because he's never shot uh, a big game animal before. So after I got my deer and I was taking my daughter, I showed him where to go for this particular deer. And two hours later, it came out and uh, right in the same spot. And he missed him at, I don't know, 220, 230 yards. Uh, it was just buck fever. He's, you know, as I said, he's a good shot, but he just totally missed. I will say that Later in November, he got a, a pretty nice five by five elk with his muzzleloader. So he did get on the scoreboard this last year. I mean, he, but he was still shaking. I had seen him like four or five hours later, and he was still shaking. The deer was so big that 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 popped up. Pretty now, excited. It was interesting because, yeah, excited, shaking. He wasn't coherent. He was telling the story a little bit different every time. I mean, he actually got down and I think crawled, and you know, he's, he's two hundred twenty yards away, and, uh, but. It happens to all of us. So, but but I went back uh, after my son had a tag. So we went back late October, right at the end of the season, looked for that deer. We didn't find him. I went back several times in November and even in December because the snow held out. I never saw that buck again. So once it was shot at, it tore out of there. It changed its pattern. But but this year I've also uh, at the end, end of this year I I also found a couple nice bucks in early November. And so I've got them patterned for next year as well. So the, the bucks will tell you. And so that's what I would say is, you know, you have limited time. And if you could come out, if you were a resident, it might be easy just to, you know, go back out after the season and, and scout a deer because that deer may not survive the winter or it may be taken in late season hunt. But it's really telling you where it where the bucks are going to be. If not that one, where other ones are going to be in, in those areas. And if you're a non-resident and you know you're coming out uh, to hunt, you know you're going to draw at some point or you have a plan. If you can somehow schedule that and come out a year earlier after the season and do your scouting then, 
the Bucks will show you along with Google Earth or Onyx to try to you know direct you into the right areas, but the Bucks will still tell you where they're going to be. Yeah. So uh, you talked about transitions a bit in your book, and I know that's something that we wanted to talk about. Um, do you think? Do you find it like when you find these pockets of Bucks? So like that, the big buck that your son-in-law missed, were there other deer in that pocket as well? Like, do you really find them? Like once you find one buck, you're probably going to find a few more hanging right in that pocket. Yeah. Uh, I, he was with a single doe and he was in a, a, a pre-rut pattern in, in that particular case, but you're going to find them in that area of habitat. Maybe not in that, that same small, he was in a small aspen patch, about 10 acre patch, but you're going to find them in the area exactly. And when that buck is taken out, you know, other bucks have probably learned that pattern. A lot of times they'll have satellite bucks that will follow them and learn from the older bucks as well. So it, that is not an exact science, but that is a great indication of where they're going to be in those areas. Good to know. So do you want to, let's dive into the transitions a bit. I think this goes right along with a question that um, is asked a lot is like, once you've found a deer, like how long do you, how long do you stay or how long until when you don't see him, you leave? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. I've, and I've heard that in some of these podcasts as well, that question. And I'll say that it's, it's a difficult question in one sense, and there's no exact science to understand. Just like when I give the example of these mule deer bucks, that, that wide one that would come in, and he, he was fat and, 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 and the rest of them were all gaunt when they're coming in and depleted. You know, individual bucks, individual cases can be different. But I think understanding these fall traditional patterns will guide you the, to the correct answers most of the time. And that's, that's the best you can do. So. I think we can kind of discuss a few different scenarios, maybe four different ones. Yeah. And see how that can be used. That'd be great. Now, I will say that I have some figures on these transitions and the drivers in the book, but uh, it's a little bit harder without having that in front of you. First of all, if you look at key drivers for mule deer, well, first of all, with the ability to survive, they're proportionally smaller rumens, so they have to be very selective feeder, feeders. But also you have hormonal changes going on, especially when the antlers become hard and they become more nocturnal and secretive and then the influence of the rut. So all these are competing factors which determine these transitions. The first one that we can discuss would be a mid-September bull hunt. So in this case, and this is a common scenario, you have, you've done preseason scouting, you've located your, in the summertime might've been August, you've located a, a nice buck, uh, honey season starts maybe in early September, and you've been getting pretty close with your bow, but not careful not to spook him, waiting for the right situation, and then he disappears. And so the question is, you don't think he's been spooked? You no, know, if they are physically spooked, you know that could, they could change the pattern. But let's say they haven't been spooked. You now, what do you stay in this case for your buck, or do you move? Now it's important to realize that at this time around mid-September, you have a a late summer to an early fall transition. So even though that buck may have been this pattern for a couple months, you know, his diet is changing. Uh, basically, the forbs and grasses are drying out. He's going to go to a browse-rich diet. 
has to move to a different area at some point in around mid-September. Uh, in idle perspective, this is when that occurs. Now, if you're moving south, you may have to add a few weeks on some of these dates as you change latitude. So the key is that also what I found is that it's hormonal by nature because once their antlers become hard and rubbed, their nature changes. They become more secretive. Uh, they become more nocturnal. And they'll want to go to the thicker cover anyhow with that browse-rich areas. It's interesting because I observed this pattern both in the high country, but also on uh, river-bottom river country and private fields, uh, talking to uh, you know farmers and ranchers. They'll have bucks that hang, hang around all summer on their place. And then mid-September, they're gone. They won't see them again until, until the following year. And the alfalfa is a forb. And it's watered. I mean, it's not drying out in that case. So it's hormonal as well. So I think in this case that that buck is probably gone. It would be normal for him to lead to a different area. That can be many miles. That could be in the next basin potentially. But that buck is probably gone. Interesting. Yeah, it's hard to... It's tough because when you find a buck in in archery season so like this year is a good example um of one thing that i ran into so i scouted some deer actually in late june on a uh, finger ridge and i actually shot a buck probably 200 yards like two to 400 yards from exactly where i saw those deer october 11th and uh okay. I hadn't seen, like I had hunted that finger ridge pretty much all of archery season. Um, and then a little, well, yeah, I guess just all of archery season. And then when we went back in there for uh, rifle season, it had snowed. And as soon as the storm broke, the bucks got on their feet and I shot that deer. So like they were there the whole time, but it's, that's, it's tricky. Just knowing when to, when to stay and when to leave or when to leave and like, come back or how far you should go look from where you're at or there's so many factors yeah was it an area that is relatively low water resources or was there a lot of water in that area as well there was there was some water in that area as well like low more towards the valley floor from what i had found my only thoughts on that pattern is that early june when you had seen that buck you know, that's the, the, obviously, the browse is very succulent and, and very green at that point in time, and so they get a lot of their water from from the actual from the forbs and, and grasses. Then, as it dries out, they may have to transition. But you know, once it snows, they'll they're comfortable just just uh, eating snow for their water. So they'll go back into some of these areas. Uh, so I don't know if they left or not, but they'll go back into some of these areas because that snow will provide them the water resources that they need. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Did not think about that at all. So let's see, we went through some of those transitions. Uh, do you think we went through the transitions well? Yeah, let's go to, to we have three more I think that might be useful. Yeah. yeah. Next one would be a early October rifle hunt. So this would be a, a typical pattern immature mule deer buck and uh, he disappears you ever see him for a day or two trying to get into the, the right uh, spot and stalk situation for example uh, the question to ask then is 
early October rifle hunt, that buck is probably in the early fall transition. Question is, that buck transition to a mid-fall transition? And there's two, two key questions you should ask uh, at the time that that buck disappeared. The first one is, uh, was there any difference in foliage change, especially a hard frost, uh, which will change the leaf cover or significant snow? Uh, when they're under pressure, a lot of times they might hole up into some of these thicker, like aspen shrub habitats, where it's relatively thick. But you know, once that once you get a hard frost or even a hard snow will do that, once the leaves come down, they generally feel much less secure and, and they'll move. But second question was, you know, when you saw that buck in this early fall pattern, is that a great feeding location? I mean, it's it's going to probably certainly be high browse. Is it not very secure? Is, is it what you consider very secure? Is it a thick, gnarly timber patch with great escape routes, or is it more exposed with somewhat hunters nearby? So if the, if the question is for either of those, yes, then I would say that that buck in that case is probably gone. It probably left its early fall pattern, which it might have been in for a month. Because in that early fall pattern, they are mainly nocturnal, but they're really feeding pretty heavily on browse to continue to put on weight before the you know the rut in the winter time. That buck probably transitioned to a mid-fall transition. Yeah, and the third one is a mid-October rifle hunt. So in this case, you know, mid-fall is kind of an area where the time period where bucks are said to totally disappear. And so many people think it totally disappeared, but then they see them in November during the rut. So obviously they didn't get shut off. Some would say that the bucks are gone or shut off, but they just disappear. So hardest time uh, to hunt a, a mature mule deer buck. And this is because they are uh, in a survival pattern. So it's not about comfort for them. It is really about uh, they are into their, into their refuge. They are, they are into their best play the best time for survival. Watching football like this last week, you know, this is like fourth down and 10 at the end of the game. You need to have your best play uh, in at this time. So this is the survival strategy. It's not about comfort. So this mid-fall pattern is when the bucks uh, disappear, be located generally in, in, in areas of thick cover, a gnarly spot, you know, a hideout. You want to look for complex terrain where they can have a lot of escape routes. So in this case, if you've seen your buck, uh, you didn't spook him, you don't believe other people spooked him out, but now you can't find him, probably still there. Very difficult, it's gonna be a very difficult area to spot. There's gonna be a lot of places to hide. Best play, he's not gonna wanna leave this at this point in time. He may be mainly nocturnal. So he's probably there, you wanna keep hunting. Keep hunting that buck, keep staying on him and try to try to locate him. In that Yep. Interesting. And I would say that is the scenario that plays out a lot of times when Robbie tells people to stay put and just keep turning it over. And he's told me that was some of the big deer that he's taken is he's like, you know, you see him one time or a couple of times and you just sit in that area and keep turning it over and turning it over. And pretty soon they boom, there they are. And they were probably there the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. They were probably there the whole time, but they're in their best survival area that they know extremely well and most people aren't like Robbie in general 
uh, you know, for hunting skills, but most of us would, would probably give up after a couple of days and that yeah. buck would survive. They'll stay to it until it finally makes a mistake. Yep. Now the, yep. the last one is a, a late October muzzleloader hunt. So in this case, uh, you know that that buck is holed up or maybe someone told you, maybe you have a different tag and they say, hey, this buck I lost, but he's in this particular area. So it is in, he, he's in a sanctuary. He's holed up very secure location. It's a big, mature buck. So we're not talking, you know, small, two talking mature bucks. Uh, but uh, it's now late October and you've seen them earlier and now you can't locate them. But I would argue that that buck is probably gone. He's probably going from mid fall to late fall pattern. What happens in this case is that their necks will swell up and their hormones start to rage. And even though they know they're in a good spot, they'll leave at their own peril and they'll start moving down towards the does in a, in a, into a late fall pattern. They won't necessarily be with the does yet because uh, the rut hasn't necessarily started, but they're going to leave that sanctuary, move closer to the does. So once you start getting to late October, and that could also be early, early November, this is the time that uh, you're going to want to move. And probably... Probably it'd be somewhat, I'm guessing, somewhat close. It'd probably be in the areas where the nearby does are, maybe lower elevation, maybe areas which are are a little more open with with uh, good browsing, but also good habitat for the for to, to move around. Interesting. So that later season, those those bucks moving down or leaving their secure areas, do you see that like? A lot of people will say the bucks will stay up there until like the snow pushes them down or until their bellies are dragging in the snow. Um, what do you think about that? Like if you were to get a really early snowstorm, do you see those deer bailing off early and vice versa when there's no snow? Do you see them coming down about the same time? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's limits to what deer, what mule deer will tolerate. So if you get more than 18, 20 inches of snow, they're going to move down. They may move back up, but certainly if you get too much snow, that's going to be too much for them. But no, they'll definitely come down. The biggest bucks will come right down. If you look at, I've got that with some revised patterns in, in, in my book, River Bottom Country. If you look at river bottoms, you know, take a, a thick river bottom, which is low elevation. You've got everything you need for a mule deer to survive. You've got generally farm fields nearby with alfalfa which are frosted but they're still good you got heavy brows you've got water you got thick cover so those does aren't leaving you know a lot of times the does in the river bottom they don't have the hormonal changes they've stayed there the whole time so the bucks were there all the way through you know the through a late summer early fall and then they head up to the high country and you know this i know this from the areas that i hunt and, and the high country might be six eight miles away but they'll go up to the high country they'll just disappear you won't find them but then all of a sudden uh during this time in the the mid to late fall they'll come right down they'll come right down all the mountains all the way down to the river river bottoms why because that's where the does are so they may you know if the does are up high uh in feeding and, and browse they will go there but if the does are down low they'll come right down gotcha it makes makes total sense to me um do you want to go into a couple of your a couple of your hunts 
um, that you've done a couple of, you know, I'm sure they're all memorable, of course, but just a couple of them that stick out, whether that is you had to do something very unique to get the deer or anything like that. Yeah. I can probably go through a couple of hunts from this year. Yeah. And I'll talk about my four by four mule deer. It wasn't uh, tremendously huge, but it still was a trophy. So in Idaho, we had a unique situation where we had uh, one to two feet of snow that happened, I think, the second and third day of season. The whole area was at least one foot, but as you go up, it was obviously higher snow. That's a really good snow. That'll really uh, get deer moving. I was hunting an area, then I was hunting the third day. I love hunting after a storm, especially after a high wind, because they won't move very much during the wind. I hate hunting in the wind. I'll hunt in snow and rain, whatever, but the, but the wind. The third day was clear. I figured I would see a lot of deer, so I headed up into the mountains. Uh, when I travel, I like to travel in the dark. I want to get into position, you know, at least 30 minutes before legal shooting time. I can minimize uh, not spooking the animals. So I was in a, a primary spotting location of, of it was relatively lower. This is probably uh, only 6,000 feet up because I was already in 18, 20 inches of snow and, and it was higher snow. So the deer were pushed lower than I would normally hunt. But I was in a primary spotting location where I could see a lot of different areas. So in the first hour I had seen about uh, eight different does, which isn't too many I thought I'd see more. So I figured that the deer actually might be in some back canyons, which are much lower elevation, about a thousand feet lower. Uh, it drops down and it was in the area of of, of uh, sagebrush step when there's a lot of bitter brush back there. So they'll feed without the wind. I thought they'd be back in there. So when I moved through, I've learned to move to the country and I really move very carefully to try to maximize uh, the cover, even at some expense of being able to see the country, so I had moved through. I had to go up and over a high high ridge line to drop down, and so I was moving through a, an aspen patch that was shaped of a Y, so it was thick at the bottom, and it had two branches, one up at the top. So I moved through the aspen patch. There's some old cow trails I could move through, and I was the inside of this Y, uh, still heading up, and I see the this uh, back of this deer that merges from the backside where I was headed. I'm like, man, that's a big deer. So I wait and it comes over and then uh, drops down just right tight to the aspens in the buck brush. I mean, right tight in this little pocket. It had a great area because it could see, you know, miles down the valley in one direction. It had the wind at its back so it could smell uh, anything come from behind him. And it was just standing there feeding on the, on the buck brush. Now I looked at that buck and I'm like, man, that was a really nice buck. It was really big. Its antlers were proportionally smaller compared to its size. And so finally I decided it was like 125 yards that I would pass on that deer. So I went uh, downhill and then snuck up the other side. I had to cross over the top on the other side that Y, however. And so I'm crawling over because I knew that buck, you know, was there. And I didn't want to spook him. It was about 300 yards out at that point. And just slightly above the the buck brush, and I looked back, and he had he had spotted me. He was locked on my position. That little bit of movement, he was locked on. And you know, when a mule deer buck, a mature buck, locks on you, it's like a burning intensity. He's just totally focused. He's not moving. 
you can almost feel his eyes burning through you because he knows it's something and he's just waiting for any little thing to trigger. And he had many mobile escape routes and he would have been gone instantly, but he was, but I know he didn't really knew what I was. So I watched him and then kept going and crawled over. And it was just a beautiful day. I mean, it was the next three hours or so I had spotted another 18 to 20 deer. Uh, these were all does as it turned out and they were all just feeding uh, uh, in that sagebrush step. They're all, but they were all moving through the territory because they were probably holed up for two days because of the storm. So I came back through a, a different route and onto a high point where I eased up over real careful again to overlook that country where that buck had been. And uh, I was looking and didn't spot anything for a little bit. And then I, I should have looked there first, but looked exactly in the same spot because it's tucked right tight against the aspens where he was. And there he was standing there, that same buck. But instead of looking down where I'd left, he, was, he had spotted me again, just locked onto my position. That little bit of movement at uh, about 200 yards, he was locked on, he had spotted me. And so I'm looking at him in the binoculars and I'm thinking, man, that I couldn't see the, the buck looked like he hadn't moved, looked like he hadn't bedded. In fact, after, uh, afterwards, I, I went down there and he hadn't bedded in three hours. He has been trying to decipher what I was for three hours that whole time and not moving, not even betting, because he was very smart. So I was thinking, man, that's just a wily old smart buck. And uh, so I shot him, got all the shooting sticks, 200 yards is an easy shot, and verified again that he hadn't moved. He had been shot before, had an old wound in the back that was healed up. But just a smart old buck, I've got his antlers. I took down a smaller set in my office just to put up the European mount, because just a smart old buck, that had survived many years. I'd like to know the age, but I did drop off the, the teeth to uh, Robbie Denning for cementum age analysis. Perfect. I'm excited next month or two to get that, that data back. Have you aged all of your deer? I haven't aged any of my deer. Any of them? And gotcha. that's something I mentioned in my book that I should be aging these deer because, you know, I always look at the teeth, but I have a lot of different habitats and we have a lot of sand. And that's why Idaho's got potatoes because they grow well in the sand with sprinkler irrigation. But, you know, if it's a sandy soil, the teeth are going to wear out much, much faster. So you really can't tell by the teeth. And it's something I should have been doing all along. I mean, this year I dropped off two mature bucks and three bull elk to, to Robbie. So it's something I'll certainly do in the future. Yeah, that's going to be cool to see. Just, uh, just from this year as well. So I went back to it. So another area back in uh, a few days later, my daughter lives in Boise as well, came out to hunt. And this is now three or four days after we had the snow. All the snow had melted in town. And, you know, it depends on in the mountains, though, it depends on elevation if that snow melted. So we wanted to go hunt to this pretty high area I know that mule deer like to hole up in. So I had uh, my daughter, Melissa, and another hunter that the guy wanted to go with me that had an elk tag so we left really early and hiked all the way up into the mountains probably over 7,000 feet maybe 7,200 a couple miles back maybe two and a half miles back into this uh, area and it was very interesting because obviously as we started going higher and higher we got into more and more snow and what happened was because of all the snow melt 
there was a thick crust of snow. It was probably an inch thick of ice on top. And so you had to break through. We had three of us and I was breaking trail. And unfortunately we got out, we got up there to our spot a little bit after first light, which is disappointing, but breaking the trail was, you know, took a long time. So we're in an area, which I, I like to call a secondary kill location because the mule deer really will hole up and they won't be far from cover. There's about a 10 to 15 acre thick Douglas fir patch that they'd love to get into uh, to hole up during the season. This was the second uh, weekend of the general hunting season. So a lot of hunters out on a, on a Saturday, a lot of activity down lower. And we were there waiting. I was a little worried because we were in probably close to two feet of snow where we were and walking up, we were passing a lot of deer tracks in the dark, but for a long ways there, we had not spotted a single deer track. There were some elk and moose tracks up there because it was pretty, pretty good snow for the mule deer to be up that high. But I was thinking that with all the mule deer hunters down below that they would be pushing them up. That would be a typical pattern. So for the first two hours, we had seen two does quite a ways down, uh, down lower elevation in about two hours. But then all of a sudden deer started uh, coming up. We had, there were a number of shots and you could hear four wheelers down below and activity and different shots in different areas. And deer started coming up. There were, in fact, we probably saw close to 25 deer, just little wow. herds of two and threes and fours and some single bucks uh, would come in, working the top of the ridges, below the ridge of the side hills. And they all were when they all went into the thick patch of, of Douglas fir that we were that we were waiting over. So I'm like, man, this is looking pretty good, but none of these bucks are they were all small bucks. And then I looked, this is like maybe three hours in the hunt, so well into the morning, and right on the trail that we had walked up on, which is we didn't have a trail, just like bottom of the V Canyon, but on our tracks, I looked down there and here's this big mule deer buck about uh, 300 yards away. Uh, it just came out of nowhere because we walked up the bottom of the canyon and all the other ones that deer had moved in were in the, the top of the canyons and, and up the side hills and it was just standing there. So my daughter is just a, a great hunter. She's shot a lot of big mule deer bucks and she's calm, much more calm than I am or anyone else I take. She just uh, is calm and she just <laughs> lines them up. It could be the world record buck and she would just line it up and make the shot. She She's very calm. And so she shot it and a big six by five mule deer buck. It was probably in the, it's probably high 170s, maybe, maybe 180s. I, I haven't really scored it, but really solid quality buck. So we went down there and I'm wondering where did this buck come from? Because it, it just kind of appeared. And it's very interesting because I backtracked it. It had followed our tracks up for, I followed for about 200 yards, but I didn't follow it the whole way. And then we had to get the deer out. And, but it actually, from all that activity that was down at lower elevation, it had found our track of three breaking through the crust. And they had decided that that was the easiest and quietest way to escape. So it actually followed our tracks right to us. Really? And I hadn't really, I hadn't really seen that before. Yeah, I followed our tracks right up, right above the lower country and right up into the higher country that we were located in. First, is there anything specifically that you see people doing and they're asking questions on, like any advice that you'd give somebody that's trying to 
especially I would say take their mule deer hunting to like the next level and really try to hone in on a big deer and really understanding um, how they work. Yeah. Mule deer hunting is hard. And well, one point I'll make is that you're not just hunting the mule deer, but you're competing with other hunters as well. You want to be able to hunt differently and you want to um, be able to think differently. That's a big part of my mule deer hunting book. Understanding these fall transitions are important to be able to hunt the right areas at the right time. And we already talked about the importance of post-season scouting. That can be, especially for the October and November hunts, some of the most important scouting you can do. I was interesting that you asked this question, though. You know, I think a key part of of really raising your game and becoming, you know, moving into the top 20% of hunters is probably keeping a scouting and hunting journal. And I just actually launched a new book. I actually got the the author copy yesterday, so I haven't announced this, but I have a new book called So You Want to Hunt the West, Scouting and Hunting Journal. Oh. And so what I did was, yeah, very interesting that how do you make a better hunter? You become a better hunter by carefully taking records of your scouting and hunting events because it's only by having these these records that you can actually correlate, understand these fall traditional patterns and be predictive and, and raise your gain to become a better hunter. So in this book, I worked on uh, having pre-filled data fields, which you can write over. So I have all the unique uh, metrics that you need to understand these animal behavior and fall traditional patterns. So you write over these metrics, the pre-filled, and you want to tie, and also have an area where you can tie it into your GPS mapping waypoints because in your Onyx software, you can put all the information there, but then you get so many points in there that it's hard to find it, but you can tie that to the journal. So I think that's a key component to actually improving your hunting, because the more information that you have, the more database that you build up, just makes it so much easier, you know, for hunts. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And I think it just, it just takes time. There's no easy button to it. It just takes time in the field and figuring things out. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Great. So when is this new book going to be released? Uh, it's already released. Oh, it's just, completely just released. The author cop- awesome. copy. Yeah. I just wanted to verify yesterday. I just got it actually last night. And everything came out printed correctly. So it is released on Amazon as well. Fantastic. So where so Amazon is where you can find that book and your original book. Is that the best place that you'd recommend people get it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just selling through Amazon, have the hardcover, paperback, and Kindle for my mule deer book. And again, that's called So You Wanna Hunt the West for Mule Deer, now what? And just find Amazon and order it. Awesome. As well, with a scouting and hunting journal. Great. Well, thanks, Dan. I'm going to get on and get your scouting and hunting journal now. Um, and yeah, thanks for thanks for taking the time to hop on. And yeah, hopefully, hopefully we. I know we spread some good information on here. Yeah. Thank you. That was really enjoyable. Thanks.